you recall that we were in here last week. Um, and so we're returning to this chapter and uh, beginning with um, something of Paul's sermon to the Athenians here. So uh, while Ben gets to preach, we also get to uh, hear Paul's message, so you get kind of a double message today. So this is found on page 926 in the uh, black uh, Bibles in the pew racks in front of you there. So again, we're looking at Acts 17, uh, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thank you, Craig. I was just convinced to flip to my final page of notes and begin there. Before you get too excited, I'm going to then go back to the beginning, work my way through, and then end where I planned to, but just... The words of A.W. Tozer, and Craig hinted at that, some of what we're studying on Tuesday morning. So, man, I invite you to that. It's a, it's a short read, but it's chewy, we say. You just got to kind of get that, get through it. It's, uh, to digest it is a process and is work, but it feeds the soul. A.W. Tozer said this, and it'll summarize this message or encapsulate it a little bit, and maybe as I read it again as we end, it'll strike a deeper chord to us. This is from his third chapter of The Pursuit of God. God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful that he can, without anything other than himself, meet and overflow the deepest demands of our total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. God wills that we should push into his presence and live our whole life there. And it is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day God waits to show himself in ravishing fullness 
to the humble of soul and to the pure of heart. Lord, we pray these, along with Tozer, these words, you are so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful. Meet and overflow the deepest demands of our hearts today, Lord. We want to push into your presence, and yet we confess we often don't know how to do that. We want to live our whole life dwelling with you as you have loved, pursued, and dwelled with us. Would you meet us here, Lord? Come into our hearts, make yourself known to us as you have been doing since creation for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Last week, as I said, we began looking at Paul's short visit to Athens. So if you're a guest with us, this is part two. Um, doesn't mean it can't be powerful, but we want to understand the full context uh, as well. So you can be reading through that with Bibles open as we go. Uh, this has been called the centerpiece of, of Acts, Paul's short visit to Athens. And it's not maybe the most fruitful a visit of his all of the various cities that he traveled to and ministered in, and yet uh, there's something pretty striking that happens as he preaches at the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens. It's perhaps probably the most well-known sermon recorded in Scripture outside of the Gospels, outside of Jesus himself. And it's an incredibly insightful commentary for us for how to engage a society and a culture with the hope of Jesus, especially one that is affluent, is intellectual, and that has little to no knowledge or regard of God's Word. Does that sound like maybe it's applicable for us today as we look into our culture and society? But again, part one was where we rightly began and must be reminded of that we considered Paul's heart, the conviction that was behind the sermon. If we simply try to take words on a page and say, I need, to, I, I, I need to preach like that when I meet people. Uh, we're going to miss the conviction. We're going to miss the, the way that Paul saw. If we're going to preach like Paul, we need to see like Paul saw. We need to then be convicted of heart to feel what he felt. And that's the right order. Certainly, the gospel must move inward before it moves outward. Paul's conviction Viction was certainly driven by compassion for lost people, people that did not know the hope, the love of God, and that's what motivated him. Uh, the second part of what he was convicted of, provoked of, of heart when he came into Athens was what he saw, the rampant idolatry. Eugene Peterson described it as a junkyard of idols in Athens. A very spiritual people, but a a God for just about everything, an, an image or a statue or a trinket or a shrine or a temple to each and every one of those gods. And so that's what Paul saw as soon as he walked the streets of Athens, likely his first time visiting this great city, and he was provoked. That's what the, the word says at the beginning of chapter 17. Paul was provoked in his spirit, agitated uh, because of what he saw, and he saw past the external, past these carved images of stone and clay and glass and metal to the heart idols of these people, the heart idols of pleasure, of power, of position, and of pride. And that was ultimately Paul's holy discontent. 
This is what unsettled him. That's what motivated his preaching was that God's glory was being missed or dismissed. It was being ignored or outright rejected. And so we have to ask, do we see the same thing in our society? That's probably a a no-brainer. Do we feel the same thing is probably what needs to be wrestled with. Are we provoked in our spirit? Do we have a holy discontent when we see that God's glory is being missed or dismissed? Abused or marginalized? Well, God's glory has been reduced in our society to a footnote. It's man's glory that the story is all about. So how do we engage a culture like this? Especially one that in very similar ways is affluent, is intellectual, honors wisdom or at least reason and logic and science, maybe spiritual at at some level. Probably with that comes some arrogance. A culture that has little to no regard for God's word, if any knowledge of it at all. How do we engage a society like this? This is why it's such a commentary for us. And so many have looked to Paul in the way he did engage this culture 2,000 years ago. So much has changed, and in some ways not much has changed at all. The Athenians were asking deep questions, and that's how we first engage if we see as Paul saw, and if we are provoked of heart, feel what he felt, then we look for those deep underlying questions. The Athenians were asking, where is meaning? Where is purpose? Where is fulfillment found? How can I be satisfied in life? Can we truly know joy and peace in the midst of a tumultuous and evil and sad world? Is there a spiritual realm And if there is this spiritual or divine or higher power or powers, can it be known? Can it be experienced? If you only live once, how should you live? What are the highest virtues and the highest values? Is there truth? And can that truth be known? Can you be sure? All of these would have been questions that the Athenians were asking. Ones that our culture and your friends and neighbors those you work with, are asking. And if you're honest, you're asking those too. So look how and hear how Paul began his address. Again, verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. Wow, he found a place to resonate with their heart. And in some ways you say, is he trying to catch flies with honey? In a moment, we'll see uh, some jabs that he gives to them. Now in our context, we we might not say, I see in every way that you're very religious. But we may say something like, I can tell how serious you are about your convictions, about your perspectives, how much thought and Hint has been given to those things. So see how he, he finds a place to honor and recognize that there's, mu- there's much more going on in the story of these people in their hearts. So he builds that immediate bridge, has to create that context, and we must do the same. And Paul then brings into the open that they are looking for something deeper, something more. 
something that is beyond them. And they're willing to recognize and admit, yes, we do look for something more that we haven't yet fully understood or experienced by this altar to the unknown God. Now, in some, maybe, maybe they were just trying to cover their bases as people today seem to dabble and mix and match philosophies, maxims to follow, worldviews, perspectives, a little bit here, a little bit there, to try to find that right recipe of what works for them or what is meaning and maybe elevate it to the point of truth or at least personal truth. So maybe they were just trying to cover their bases. But what Paul is going after is, listen, there's something in your heart that recognizes you don't perceive everything at the spiritual, deeper level. There's more meaning. There's more truth out there that you are admitting is unknown, and you are worshiping that. If we can find that underlying foundation, that longing of heart that there's something more, I know it. I don't know what it is yet, but there's more. There's got to be more than this. Then we can begin to preach the hope of the gospel in those places. Now, in our context, as we need to find out what is missing, sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. Recently, I was counseling with someone, and and they essentially said, you know, I thought by now, at this age, everything would be totally different. I feel totally lost. Everything I, I was pursuing has not fulfilled or not come about. Does that sound familiar? Sometimes it's not quite that obvious where someone just openly expresses I'm wide open to something other than what the path I have been pursuing and my perceptions what I've been taught my whole life that was supposed to bring fulfillment or satisfaction is empty it's not working and I have to admit that I was wrong to pursue that I'm open turn me a different direction so sometimes it's not always so obvious. Our society likes to appear put together. Have you noticed? <laughs> the makeup we wear, we, the clothing, the jewelry that we flash or hide behind, our fitness. We rent more or lease more expensive cars than we can afford to buy. We go in debt on our credit cards to go on a vacation, probably just so we can post the pictures on Facebook and Show how good our life and family is. Okay, I'm maybe exaggerating. The mask of our public persona is hanging on the hook by the door right next to our keys. You know, Catherine and I often, we, we say, wallet, phone, keys, right? When you're walking out the door, it's good to have those things. Um, one of them keeps you from going anywhere. Uh, the others tend to affect day-to-day life. But maybe it should be wallet, phone, keys, mask. Make sure to put that mask on, that persona that you're about to go into the world with because every day is a job interview. There's a maxim for you. It feels like that, doesn't it? Like Paul, we need to look past the veneer that we see in a society amongst the people and see the heart. And it's okay if you're at a loss with a friend or, or a neighbor and their life really looks good. In fact, you might say, I, I kind of want more of, more of that myself. And I've got, I've got Jesus over here and I think, I, can I, I, just a little, a little more of what you have? It's okay to ask, hey, hey Matt, um, man, your life looks, looks to be pretty put together. I, I mean, you, you seem to have everything that the world would say 
strive for? How, how did you do that? How did you get there? What are you likely going to hear? Now, this is obviously a relationship that you have already established with someone. You've, in some way, I have a, you, we have a lot of those uh, kinds of relationships that we might be surface or casual with, but maybe you have a point to go a little bit deeper. What are you probably going to hear in response to something like that? A, a compliment uh, like Paul gave to these people, and it looks like life is good for you is ultimately the center of that compliment. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I'm, just, I'm just doing my best. I guess life has been good to me. I've worked hard, but really, um, it's, it's probably more of just what you see. If you really knew, <laughs> let me tell you about my marriage or my kids or, or what work is really like, if they're willing to be honest. And so you start to hear some of those places where you can engage with the gospel. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so, so there is, there's more. There's a longing that you're looking for. With all of that, you're not fulfilled? It's not perfect yet? If you do hear in response, oh yeah, life is great, and let me tell you. So they're, they're now going to sell you their life maxim. Fill in, fill in the maxim you want. Life is too short to worry. The power of positive thinking. Work hard, play harder. You know, that's what I live by. So they're, they're still willing to hold up that mask. That's okay. Um, they're not ready for the gospel. There's not, a, there's not a crack there. That heart is hard. Just as so many that Paul preached to, like Jesus before him, were not ready to be told that they were wrong. Now you can do that in all sorts of creative ways, but do you like being told you are wrong? It can be the most important thing you ever hear. Right? From the counsel of friends, the rebuke of friends, Proverbs speaks often to those things, that those who receive it are truly wise. But it can still be hurt, hurtful and painful. None of us like it. To consider Jesus, someone needs to finally be willing to admit, you know, I've, I've been wrong plenty. I've been wrong in big things. Not just in little mistakes or forgetfulness, but in big life pursuit things. And I recognize that as my eyes open, as I, as I grow, as I mature, as I see more, the more I see, the more I learn, the more I don't know. Ultimately, you have to at least be in that place to say, I'm, I'm open to hear more. And at least for some of the Athenians were saying, we're open to hear, hear more of this, Paul. This is so different. We're willing, though. That's a softness. Now, many outright rejected and probably walked away and didn't engage at all. Their hearts were still hard. But these Athenians, at least the ones that would say, yeah, that unknown God shrine, I worship there often because I know there's something beyond me. They're willing to hear more and maybe take it into their heart. We must look for that kind of awareness, that softness, that openness, looking for that fertile soil to sow seeds. But as I've often said, the seeds that we sow of the hope of God's word, the truth of, of the gospel, uh, that seed bag doesn't run out. That's an endless supply. So yes, we're wise about where we, where we sow, where we share. Uh, the word speaks to that too, that discernment, that perspective. But the picture that was given to me when I realized I would make the judgment on how receptive that heart was quickly and then never sow a seed, not worth it too hard. If there's soil there, it's under a layer of concrete and that concrete is thick. And the image that, the picture that God just rebuked me with was a seed sitting on top of that concrete, the soil maybe three feet below. And we have a God who shakes the earth. And if the earth shakes, even the hardest concrete can crack. 
and that seed can fall. And we never know when the earth is going to shake in that life. And for all, for all of us that are following Jesus, at some point, the earth shook <laughs> to disrupt, to create those cracks that we could receive the gospel, that we could confess and repent and say, everything I had pursued or have been pursuing is wrong. It's not fulfilling. Lord, help me. Forgive me. I need you deeply. That's the moment where that seed starts taking root of the gospel. And that can happen at any moment, at any time. So yes, be discerning and look for openness. Look for softness. Look for those underlying deep questions that people are asking about. Isn't there more? There must be more. And look to sow seeds. But remember that those seeds can be sown at any point, at any time. For those who have open ears and perhaps still soft hearts, those that are still listening, whether it's our relationship, they continue to engage us. They're still listening. Or for in this case, for Paul, most of us won't be, by the way, in that kind of context, very different. The, the Areopagus, we don't have a place really like that. Uh, we, didn't have, we don't have a place like the Agora, the marketplace. Uh, we have to find other contexts. We don't get just get to go to places, step up onto a, a soapbox and have people gather around. Uh, this, oh, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> a few of us do. Um, but there are places and accessible points that we do have because our whole lives preach. Um, many of us are doing that digitally now and socially, uh, but we want to think about how people that are still listening, still asking and inviting, they're, they're engaged in the conversation somehow. How does Paul begin? How does he take it to that next level for those that are still listening? Remember, very two different tactics. For the Jews, when he went into the synagogue, where did he begin with, to preach the gospel? with the Old Testament, the prophets, uh, speaking to the Messiah. Let me show you that the Messiah you already believe in is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth. That was his beginning point because they had so much in common already. He didn't need to tease that out and begin somewhere else. Now, for the Gentiles, these Greeks, he couldn't begin with the Old Testament scriptures. They had no knowledge of that. For people that have no knowledge of of Scripture to begin with John 3.16 is confusing at best and offensive at most. There's no context there. So Paul, where does he begin? He begins with creation. The gospel begins at creation. It is good news. Because everyone who has ever lived in some form, in some way, has asked that question of origin. How did we get here? Why are we here? Paul answers that, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the good news. There is a God. He is creator God. He is sovereign. And he is not only sovereign, he is providential. He is perfect. This is the God that Paul is proclaiming, beginning at creation. And Paul did the same thing when he wrote to the Romans. And as I said last week, we don't, we don't have a letter back to the church in Athens. In fact, we don't know how that church grew or really that story uh, all that well like we do in some of the other cities that he was in. But likely, very similar words would have been written to the church in Athens or those believers in Athens as were to the church in Rome 
Very similar cultural values in society under Roman rule. So he wrote this in Romans 1.19, beginning in the same place, beginning with creation. What can be known about God, Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. The common ground that Paul is building is God's revelation through creation. He has made himself known. And you know it is what he's proclaiming to these people with no biblical knowledge. You know there's a God in everything that you've seen. There is a divine spark behind everything. You know it. Psalm 19.1, this is King David wrote this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It has been said that it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a God-fearer or an agnostic or religious or spiritual in some way. I, I don't know if that's true. I would say it takes equal faith faith at minimum applied in different places but if the scriptures are true then i would lean toward what solomon wise man said god has put eternity into the heart of men ecclesiastes 3:11 all men all men have received that gift from god being created in his image god has put eternity in the hearts of all people and if that's true, then there is, there is a, a, a needed silencing of that inner voice, conscience, nagging of all people in order to become an atheist, that there is no God. Then there is an inner nagging put into all people that eternity, there's something far beyond this world. Ironically, I think the true atheist does not even engage in the debate. We are probably hearing from those that are deeply troubled, trying to convince themselves still and suppress their own inner nagging that their way is right and thus be justified in it. Because the, the true atheist who has been convinced, who has figured out how to silence that voice completely, doesn't engage in the argument, God, why do I need to speak of God? I need to make no comment of that, and this is all there is. So good for those who find some form of joy. I guess the only agitation for that person would be when an agenda of oppression is put upon others through that belief. But to speak of God is not necessary. For those that are deeply agitated about defending that position that there is no God and trying to convince you who believe there is, I'd say there's a crack there. But the Athenians were not atheists. They were spiritual. They were what we might say are agnostic, that God is not knowable. There is a divine, it's clear, we believe it, it's beyond us, or, or there are many gods, many spiritual forms, many paths, many ways, but not knowable. We can't ever truly be certain or sure. A personal relationship with a divine God was not even contemplated. The gods are distant, if anything. They're aloof. They're beyond us. These were the Stoics who were pantheists. There's a divine spiritualness in everything. Not knowable. Not, we're not even pursuing that 
knowledge. We're pursuing earthly knowledge and reason. The Epicureans, who knowledge and all truth was only experienced. There were many gods, but they are also disconnected from the realities that we live in. So to the Stoics, Paul proclaims, God is distinct from his creation. And to the Epicureans, Paul states, God is not aloof from his creation. He's involved in it, intimately sustaining it. And not only do the the temples that you have mean nothing, God is not housed there any longer in any temple. Also, the service and the offerings and what you bring brings him nothing. He needs nothing. In fact, we need God. In two short statements, Paul nullifies the entire religious system of Greece. Now, likely this is an outline of a sermon that Luke is capturing and recording for us. Otherwise, this is the most powerful two-and-a-half-minute sermon ever preached. And you would say, Pastor Ben, go to that school. Learn from this guy and this sermon. No, they would often speak for hours at the Areopagus and the Agora. So you are welcome. (laughs) For those who are still listening, who would say, okay, Paul, yes, yes, we believe there is a God or gods. There's divine. We're with you in creation. Okay, I'm open-minded to that that perspective, because there is something more. So those that are still listening, what does Paul say? Verse 26. He made, this God who was created, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Footnote, a whole sermon can be preached on diversity and God's desire for diversity. From one man, he created and populated this diverse world, and that is his will and his way. And the picture of heaven Every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping and proclaiming the same thing. This is our God. That's a footnote. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, but He is actually not far from each one of us, almost like He catches Himself. Wait a minute, hang on. Before, I, before you just assume that it's about you trying to pursue God and find Him as if He's hidden or hiding or elude. No, no, no. He is not far from anyone. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. It is graspable. It is right there. He's not far from any one of you. Just, just turn to Him. And then He quotes two of their poets. In Him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed His offspring. Another footnote, Paul knows the cultural voices. He's learned them. He finds ways to continue to bridge. He doesn't completely wholeheartedly dismiss them. He uses them and says there, is a, 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 there, there at least is a resonance here. You at least have this same longing or desire, if not belief. Let me tell you now what is true. The creator who is sovereign is providential. He's powerful, but he is also present Not only is he in control, he is active in creation. And the most astonishing thing that Paul is proclaiming here, that everything that this God has done is to pursue people and draw them to himself. To be known, to be loved, not just worshipped and obeyed. To be in relationship. This would have been the concept that, if anything, blew their minds that they'd never heard this before. That this God who is all-powerful, creative, sovereign, ruling king is also called Father. 
who is pursuing lost children who have run from him and he is longing for them to adopt them back to his family and restore them no matter what they've done, no matter what they've said, no matter what they've thought. That is powerful. And though it seems that Paul's sermon got cut short here, Again, maybe it was just an outline and there was much more because he was just getting to Jesus. All we have here is that he, he gets to the resurrection of Jesus. I think he probably fleshed that out, but if he, was, if he was cut off, okay, too much, Paul. Wow, you're just going on and on and on. How about we pick this back up tomorrow or in a couple days or whenever the next time we're gathering? If it was cut off, we know from his other letters that he finished this sermon. Galatians 4.4 4, and following, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which cries out, Abba, Father. Man, Jesus took this even deeper, this father relationship as if that wasn't mind-blowing enough and for us today may, maybe the message to hear we have a father and he is good and Jesus took it to a personal level with Abba it's the closest thing to our daddy that truly I think if you are a father and have had young children and they've called you daddy there's something about that that is powerfully intimate and relational And that's what Jesus is communicating. That's what Paul picks up and communicates. It's beyond an eternal, creative, distant God as if he's watching down ready to smite and judge. He is Father and he is pursuing you. He is like your daddy who is longing for your heart. And there's nothing you could do that could make him love you less than Flip side of that, there's nothing you could do that could make him love you more. You can hurt him. You can grieve him. There will be consequences. But his heart is fully for you. To a people who are spiritual, but overtly or functionally agnostic. To grasp that. That's potentially some of us. It's certainly a default for us, but certainly our world. To a people who are overtly, so willing to proclaim, yes, I'm agnostic. To those who are functionally agnostic. We go about our daily life believing there is a God and that he is present, the God maybe of this Bible, Jesus, but we live as if he is not near He is not present. He does not care. That's functionally agnostic. To those people, we must articulate one of the clearest storylines of the Bible from garden to garden, creation to recreation. That's what Paul is establishing. That we have a God who has created and now pursues lost people to redeem them, to dwell with them forever. A.W. Tozer, in that same chapter that I quoted from, and we'll quote from in a moment, he said the central fact of Christianity is, 
And you would expect that to finish with Jesus. He doesn't. The central fact of Christianity is God's presence, which we know was fully communicated in Jesus and what Jesus did to come with us, to dwell with us in the incarnation. The central fact of all Christianity is God's presence from creation to recreation, from garden to garden. God wants to dwell with his people. And so before, and let's not keep this merely as outward and practical. We need to learn to minister and preach more like Paul for the lost world. Let's bring it inward also for those of us that have that functionally agnostic default of our heart. The gospel must come inward before it moves outward. The tabernacle may be the best image within the story the picture of God's dwelling. If you know anything about this, it's, it's taught in Exodus, second book of the Bible. God rescues his people and delivers them and he's going to bring them back to the promised land, but he's got to take them through the wilderness. Probably know some of that story. He gives them the law, but he does something alongside the law that is even more powerful. He gives them instructions for the tabernacle so that he could dwell with his people in a physical, visible manifest way. They would see it in a cloud or in fire. And it was a very intricate temple or tabernacle, foreshadow of the temple. God did not remain in the cloud on the mountaintop for only a select few to be invited up into his presence for fear of their own life. Moses met with God on the mountain and received the law. The cloud has come down. God's presence has come down to dwell with his people in a tent. He's camping out with his people. God protects them, provides for them daily, guides them, leads them when it's time to move. God dwells with his people. That's the picture. When the Apostle John began writing his gospel, his explanation of the fulfillment of all God's word, he began this way with this picture, John 1.14, and the word, the logos, that'll preach, by the way, for the Stoics, where the logos, the word, reason, meant everything. Actually, the true reason, the true logos is Jesus. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. That phrase could literally be tr- translated, and he tabernacled amongst us. God, the holy God, came down from heaven, from the mountaintop, to dwell with his people in the flesh in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, which would later be the temple, the dwelling place of God with his people. And when Jesus died on the cross, at that moment, when he gave up his spirit, and he said, it is finished, the curtain in the temple that had been in the tabernacle was torn top from bottom. No longer is God dwelling only in a locale. The curtain has been torn. Not only can all men now access him, not just a priest or a high priest with a holy, purified life. All people are welcome. It also illustrates God is coming out to his people to dwell in their hearts through the Spirit. This picture of God's dwelling and his presence must be communicated somehow. 
We may never get to quickly talk about the temple and the tabernacle and the dwelling. There's a lot there. But that God's love and pursuit of lost people as sons and daughters, as a good father, must be proclaimed. And that's what Paul is building to. It's the center of the gospel. There is one God and He is glorious. He is good. He is near. Always near. He is seeking and wanting to be sought. God's glory is our joy. That should sound familiar by now. It's at the top of the list of our core convictions of the church for a reason. Most of them are not in an order. But this one is intentionally at the top. Kind of keeping in a theme that's run through church history, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 1600s. The answer to the number one question, what is the chief purpose of men? Origin question. Why are we here? What are we doing here? How did we get here? What's our purpose? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God's glory is, in fact, our joy as He is proclaimed and ascribed glory God is creator and sustainer of life for all eternity. He is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed. The world has wholly ignored him and rejected him. He is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed even if that changed nothing of our reality or our eternity because he is God. And yet, he changes both. Because he is not just God, he is good. The picture at the end in the fulfillment of time, Revelation 4, the elders proclaim, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they've existed and they were created. That's the final proclamation. It's what we get to do now in some degree as we worship him as we gather we are proclaiming these same truths yet he changes both our reality and eternity he is the giver of life and life to the full paul says he gives all mankind life and breath and everything in him we live and move and have our being god's glory is our joy and yet though god is glorious and our greatest joy we have rejected him i'm assuming paul articulated this more but he did in his letter to the romans romans 3 verse 10 none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside no one does good not even one so paul would bridge the relationship even more and we must do the same as we articulate this to people that are asking those questions and are longing. And we must be reminded in our heart too, it must go inward. As if we were on the mountaintop because we've arrived and we're showing others the way, the path. Not that way, this way. That way is going to be really hard. It's, it's really narrow, but I made it. You, come on, you can do it. We are reminded too, no, no. No, I didn't seek God. He pursued me. I, I, was, I was lost, let me tell you. Without him, I am completely lost. And even though I know this, I continue to wander. I continue to reject him and turn from him to follow the ways of my own flesh and the own, my own idols I worship of my heart. 
No, no, no. God's come after me. He broke my heart. And I'm so thankful for this friend, this invitation, this word that I read. That's how we bridge the relationship. We are not. We're not better. We're not beyond. In fact, we're just more aware of the depth of the grace of God that has come into our own lives. And from that place, that humble place, we share, we invite, we make him known. We proclaim that he longs to be sought. He has pursued, he's always the initiator, but he longs to be sought that he might be found, that he might be known, that he might be loved. And there's hope. There's hope for all who are lost in that in that truth, and that proclamation of the gospel, and for those who continue to wander, hope in Jesus and God's amazing grace, we need to be reminded, how can we forget? Romans 3.23, Paul goes on, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it could end there, and it, if it ended there, it should still lead to worship. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Know your place and worship him. But Paul doesn't end there, thankfully and are justified by his grace as a gift. Though not deserving, though you've fallen short, everyone, no one has sought him, no one is righteous, none have, have done good. That evens the playing field. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Turn to him and receive him. Turn to him in repentance, in admission of, I have been wrong, and Jesus, you're the only one that is right and true, and I'm coming to trust you fully. Paul eventually got to the same point in Athens. Interestingly, Paul emphasizes the urgency amongst the Athenians, which we should probably rightly consider if there's those parallels. He seems to be cutting through this stoicism, this apathy, this arrogance. I've got time. Let me see how this path that I'm on right now works out. in maybe false humility. I don't know if it's going to, but things are going pretty well. And if the course of that doesn't work out, I'll probably come back and explore more what you happen to be saying, that there might be more beyond this path that I'm on, but right now it seems to be okay. Paul seems to cut through that pretty sharply. The time is short. It is urgent. Verse 30 The times of ignorance God has overlooked. There's the jab we were talking about. All of your reason and logic and earthly wisdom that you have attained at the height of height, I mean, Athens, probably known as the premier city of the world, maybe on its decline, but the cradle of Western civilization, medicine and philosophy and education and reason. He says, these are the times of ignorance. You're ignorant. God has overlooked that for a time, but now the time is short. Jesus has come, and he is coming back again. I think Paul would have been astonished to know that I'm preaching his text today, 2,000 years ago. I think, 2,000 years later, I think he would have said at the Areopagus, listen, it's been almost 20 years since Jesus rose. You want to roll the dice that you've got 20 more? He said, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back soon. Your days are numbered. James would say, and this was probably already written, so maybe Paul quoted it, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You want to roll those dice? I don't know if we rightly build that sense of urgency as we proclaim the gospel. I think we probably 
recognize that. It shouldn't be too hard to build this amongst the people that we talk with. The frailty of life, that our days are numbered. There's uncertainty. It can quickly be taken away. Death and tragedy seem to be on display. And while we might not believe that a terrorist shooting will come into our own family or strike our own local school or gathering place, we're all probably aware of the knock at 1 a.m. to our door. And if that's not your reality, then it's probably the reality of a loved one or friend with the police officer standing there with a somber look. Many of us, if not most of us, have received that one phone call that changed everything from a friend, a relative, a doctor. So it shouldn't be too hard to build this sense of urgency and the frailty of our life that Paul is building. After articulating that we've all come from one man, Adam, Paul proclaims that we must all come to one man, Jesus, who was crucified and raised again. Now, Jesus did give a hint toward the end times. He said in Matthew 24, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be nations fighting against nations and dividing against one another. There will be famines and hunger in the world and earthquakes in various places. Good, so we've got plenty of time. For the last 2,000 years, I think that would have struck a chord. Jesus tended to speak in a timeless kind of way. But there's a right sense of urgency. The rain is coming. Get on the ark. And people laugh. And yet, what I think we rightly emphasize, the hope of the gospel, the longing of the restless and weary heart to find rest. And Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary. What is making you weary? And that'll preach anywhere, and I think in our culture, especially if we can get past a mask. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For those that are anxious and fearful, who are warriors, you can know true peace. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. For the hopeless, there is hope. Romans 5.3, continuing Paul's discourse there. We rejoice in our sufferings. That doesn't preach well, but it's true. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The gospel is not only a promise for one day, it is his promise for today. God is worthy to be worshipped, and he is glorious But amazingly, His glory, and as we ascribe glory to Him rightly, it is our greatest joy. That's where we find our life, our hope, our meaning, our purpose, our fulfillment. To the Stoic, who doesn't believe that's possible. To the Epicurean, that's where we find our pleasure, our enjoyment, and our peace. Only in Him, in this holy, awesome, powerful, eternal, sovereign, unchanging Creator, who is also Father giver, lover, and friend. Incredible. And it's our calling to worship him and proclaim his glory today. I'm going to finish with those words from Tozer and let them be our prayer. I'll invite the team to come 
If you're a guest with us, we must create space to respond to God's word. That's why there's more singing. Some of you love that. Some of you are mustering up now. There's also the table where we come tangibly to receive from Jesus. When Jesus broke bread with his disciples the night before he was crucified, they did not know fully what he was doing, what he was about, what was coming the next day. Their eyes would truly be open, but at that point, they were still ignorant. They knew they loved him. They knew there was words of eternal life in him. They knew there was no one ever like him for what they've seen in those years but they still didn't fully grasp the depth of what he was done. And that gives me such incredible hope to come to the table every week. And it should give you hope too when you say the same. I know I don't know. I know that there's so much more. No matter where you are in your journey, if your desire is to step toward Jesus, then you take the bread and the cup. That's what he gave to his friends. So come and receive as we respond at any point. Come in confession, Lord, I need you. Help me, Lord. I want more of you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that there's nothing I could do to make you love me more and nothing I could do to make you love me less. I'm not worthy of that grace, but I receive it. You are worthy of all. Thank you, Jesus. So we respond that way. Let me finish with these words again. God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful that we can, without anything other than himself, Meet and overflow the deepest demands of our total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. God wills that we should push into his presence. Do you hear Paul's words there? That we should seek him and find him. He is near. And that we would live our whole life there. A life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. God is waiting to show himself in ravishing fullness to the humble of soul and pure of heart. Lord God, we thank you. You are vastly wonderful, utterly and completely delightful. So meet and overflow the deepest demands of our heart this morning as we try to push into your presence, as we walk out these doors to live in that presence every moment. We struggle. We need your help. Remind us, Lord, of your grace and your mercy and your goodness. Holy Father, all-powerful, creative God, you've come for us, your children, and adopted us into your family.